0: Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. A warning, this conversation will contain discussions of sex and it might not be suitable for all listeners. Judy Blume has been a prominent author for more than 50 years. Her books are incredibly beloved. She's written for little kids, for middle school kids, for high school kids, for adults, and she's faced controversy. She's the subject of a new documentary, and perhaps her most treasured book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, is about to get its first film adaptation. I'm Linda Holmes, and today on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we're talking about the life and work of Judy Blume. Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of The Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast. Joining me today is NPR senior editor, Barry Hardiman. Hi, Barry. Hi there. And also with us is film critic and culture journalist Bidatri D. Chaudhry. Hey, Bidatri. Hello, Linda. Hello, Barry. Hi. I'm not sure how much introduction Judy Bloom needs. She has written 29 books that have sold more than 90 million copies. She writes, frankly, about sex, about puberty, about grief, and good and bad feelings in people who are anywhere from toddlerhood to adulthood. In fact, her books are so important to young readers. They've had such an impact that she's frequently on lists of the authors whose books have been most frequently challenged or banned. It's also worth mentioning that Bloom was in the news recently after she was quoted as having declared her support for J.K. Rowling, whose opposition to trans women being present in women's spaces has been widely criticized. Bloom later clarified that she fully supports LGBT people and their need for full equality and suggested that her comments were presented out of context, although she still expressed sympathy for Rowling's position as somebody who comes in for a lot of criticism on social media We're going to mostly talk about Judy Bloom's own work, though, because at 85, she's having a perhaps unexpected moment of renewed interest in that work, in part because it's been so long, literally decades, that she's held off on letting anybody adapt. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, which is coming out on April 28th. We're gonna recommend some of her work that makes a good introduction. But before we get to our recommendations, let's quickly go around the virtual table and talk about our own relationships to Judy Bloom's life and work. Bidatri, why don't you start us off? What is your sort of relationship to the phenomenon that is Judy Bloom?
1: Hmm. Um, let me talk about how I first read my Judy Bloom book. It was in a very uncomfortable corner between a cupboard in my classroom and the waste Paper Basket. I went to a girl's school in India. I was 12 years old. Of course, the book was Are You There, God? It's Margaret. And there was something about that book. It was, like I said, it was a girl's school. All my friends were like giggling and like passing this book around. And this book was probably the most well-worn book in the library, in the school. I think till then I was reading... Enid Blyton, mm. um, Nancy Drew, and that sort. And then I read that, and I'm like, wait a minute. And, you know, I was continents away from Judy Bloom's world, but this idea of someone, of a young girl who really wants to get her period, you have to go to a girl's school to understand that pressure. <laughs> You have to live through that. And I was like, oh, my God, who is this girl who still hasn't gotten her period? Because I haven't either. And can I be friends with her? So that's my introduction to the world of Judy Bloom.
0: Wow. I love that story so much. (laughs) Barry and I are just like gazing into our cameras, looking at each other on Zoom like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) Barry. Barry, what is your relationship with Judy Bloom's work like? So I
2: was a young Jewish girl and had a lot in common with many of Judy Blume's characters. She was kind of the person that introduced me to the idea of secret thoughts that you could hide in inside of books, the books that you felt like maybe you didn't want to talk about with your parents. She was the first person person I read like that. And I was incredibly happy to discover she was so prolific. And and I did find her on my own. You know, my mom used to drop me off on Saturday at like 9.30 during the summer and with like a bag lunch and come back at five. And I would spend the whole day just reading books that I didn't want anyone to see me reading. And one day was spent reading everything that Judy Bloom ever wrote. I will say, I think the idea, maybe especially for girls of my generation, Gen Xers, the idea that you could have a world that was yours, that was private, that was about reading, you were in a reading room, was really, really important to me. And I will forever
0: identify her with that. Yeah, it's so interesting because I got the opportunity to interview her in 2015 at Sixth and I, which is the historic synagogue in D.C., around the release of her one of her adult books um, in The Unlikely Event. And when I talked to her, we came on stage, we sat down, she clinked my glass, oh. which is like amazingly emotional. And what I said was, I appreciate all of you coming here to participate in this dream that I'm having in 1982 when I am 11. <laughs> and I also got to tell her that I owned the Judy Bloom diary when I was in fifth grade. Because there was a Mm spiral-bound, colorful, like, rainbow-covered diary. Oh, I know. Where I wrote about my fifth-grade crush. Thanks, Dave. I know you're still out there. (laughs) And my relationship with her work is so personal. And it meant so much to me to talk to her about writing. And I hearkened back to that conversation, you know, about the experience of having her books challenged or banned when this thing came out about J.K. Rowling. Because what I remembered was her talking about how personally hurtful and emotionally isolated she felt when her books were being challenged. And it made me suspect that back when the Harry Potter books were in the phase of, like, mm-hmm. these books are about witchcraft and should be challenged, that she sort of filed that in a particular spot as a children's author who was going through something that she had gone through. Mm-hmm. yeah, And didn't sort of rethink when it became really about a whole other you know kind of stuff that really doesn't have anything to do with the content of Rowling's books and i don't want to be making the same error about Judy Bloom that i fear maybe she's making about JK Rowling which is to say <laughs> i had a conversation with this person and they were lovely to me and so i'm hesitant to rethink my you know my feelings about them but it did make me realize that i think her ability to talk about the emotion of that is related to why I appreciated her books so much as a kid. Mm-hmm. They are so straightforward, and I have such a memory of reading Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And just like Badatri said, I read it when I had not had my period yet. And I, I think for a lot of girls, there's this sense of like, what on earth is that going to be like if you've never yeah. experienced <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. That sounds weird. And a couple of the girls in that book describe the physical sensation of it Mm. in a way that for me, gave me at least a place to start. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. okay.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to add that I was growing up in India where menstruation is like, of course, it's celebrated as an entry into womanhood, but it is a bit of a taboo. Nobody really talks about what it's going to feel like, you know, it's going to happen. And then for five days in a month, you can't go into a temple. Mm. You know, that is all I knew. And the sanitary napkin advertisements around me were, you know, we've all seen those, the blue liquid. And mm. you can't jump around. You can't eat pickles. That was where I, I was at when it came to this idea of what menstruation is. And to see her turn it into something so joyful something that should be aspired towards, something that you really want. You're praying to God every day. I know the word radical gets thrown around a lot, but it was radical and life-changing for me.
0: Yeah. I realized just the other day that still in my head from reading Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, when I was probably 10 or so, was the turn of phrase it felt like something was dripping from me. And the reason why I remember that is that at the time I was like, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. It just was like a starting point for something that felt so foreign to me. It's also, by the way, an introduction to
2: what it might be like to talk about it with your friends. Yeah, Because I read yes. that book so young that I... There's, you know, I was like nine, I think, when I read it, Um, which is now mind blowing to me because I have a nine year old and I'm I I didn't realize that it could be a topic of conversation. And thank goodness I read that book. Because when it suddenly became a thing at my middle school, I was prepared for the different ways that one could feel about it. You could be scared about it. You could be worried about it. You could really be excited about it. You could pretend to get it, which was definitely a thing that happened multiple times. It may have happened to one such as myself. It may have, uh, you know? <laughs> it may have. May have. So, you know, I mean, it it was a frame of ref- reference for the physical stuff, but it was also this emotional frame of reference that introduced me to the idea of, again, personal um, conversations about this, which then have continued into now, you know, perimenopause
1: and all the other stuff that's waiting for you at the
2: other end. You know what it's I mean? It's true. It's true. It's so
1: interesting you say that, Barry, because it's verbal conversation, but also this nonverbal conversation communal knowledge sharing because i remember the dog-eared pages. Yes. So someone before me and someone before them had read this book and dog-eared these pages, underlined them or whatever and said you should know this. Yeah. And it felt so beautiful to be a part of that invisible community.
0: That is beautiful. One of the things i talked to her about when we spoke about this book was How on the one hand, it is this really important and special moment of her kind of learning to share this knowledge with her friends and this conversation with her friends. But also these friends are kind of her introduction to navigating the expectation that you kind of judge yourself in certain ways, what your body Mm -hmm. looks like, how you interact with boys, like her coming of age into puberty is also her entree into a certain invitation to feel competitive about your body and your womanhood and all that kind of stuff. When I said that to her, she said, that's so sad. (laughs) And I I get it, but I think it's both. I think it's a little bit of both. That's a challenging time for a lot of reasons. But we do want to recommend some of her books other than Margaret. Bidatri, you are going to start with, oh, I really want to hear you talk about this book. Tell us what you picked. Me
1: too. I can't wait to hear My Judy Bloom recommendation is uh, Forever. Uh, It was written in 1975, and it's a love story between two teenagers, Catherine and Michael. And um, spoiler alert, their love doesn't love forever. I know I'm like talking about my childhood a lot. And like, maybe I am like being my own therapist when I'm doing this. But... Every film, every song, every love story that surrounded me when I was 15, 16 was about a forever kind of love. And then we're like, even when they have to die, they die together. You know, that kind of a thing. (laughs) I don't know if I was the only one and you guys can probably tell me, but... The guy I was in love with when I was 15, I thought I'm going to marry him, be the mother to his children, own a, you know. For sure. I was living in India, but I wanted a wooden cottage with a white picket fence. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh, reader, that didn't happen. But I think Forever is beautiful, A, in the way it talks about two teenagers being in love. And not just being in love, but like hormonal Mm -hmm. and very hungry for sex, which was real, like, you know, and then nobody else was talking about that. My mom was saying, you should be studying. This is not a good time for you to date. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, mom, bad news. But it was just great because a, it showed that and it was okay to fall in love, to fall in what you think is love back then. But also, it's probably not going to work out. And that's okay. Yeah. And which is a lot. Like, I thought I'm going to die after my first breakup. I cried so much. I literally, I was like, do you die from crying? So reading Judy (laughs) Bloom at that point in my life was like, well, it didn't last. But like, A, look back at everything beautiful that you shared and B, that you're going to be fine. It's okay.
0: That book
2: was revolutionary in that it seemed impossible that you could feel the feelings that you had and then it would end, you know. Yeah. And then also revolutionary in the way that it talked about sex. I am not sure, but it was definitely one of the first times I read about orgasm and that that was a thing to aspire to desire. You know what I mean? That, that mm-hmm. Definitely. I think also there is some—am I making this up? Stop me if I am. But I, I seem to remember there's discussion of, of Michael not— uh, He's not aroused. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a thing—totally revolutionary in a, you know, in a YA novel to talk about not just the sort of ins and outs of women's bodies, but of boys, too. Right, for sure. So
0: I think Forever is radical, for sure. Yeah. She has said that one of the reasons she wrote that book is that one of her daughters wanted a book where... Nice Kids Can Have Sex and Not Die. Oh, yeah. And it's not just not die, but to me, it's like not have an experience that makes them regret it yes. or makes them like feel like this was a terrible decision. And it's amazing to me to read that about a book she wrote in 1975 Because you couldn't get that on television in the 90s, you know, Uh -uh. in the 90s. If you had teenagers who had sex, you would see a pregnancy scare. You would see an STD scare. You would see regret. You would see all kinds of stuff. So I appreciate that pick. Barry, what is your pick? So I'm going to choose wifey.
2: Which has the distinction of being one of, like, five books that I own a first edition of. Wow. And by the way, one of the other ones is V.C. Andrews. So, you know. <laughs> I get it. Uh, I know you do. So, Wifey, which I think came out in, like, 1978, is an adult novel, and I think it was her first. And I found it at my grandmother's house in a stack of books that were – some of which were romance novels and others were just, you know, truly adult fiction. Uh, I loved going to my grandmother's house. And she had a pool and she had those books. So (laughs) I the book is, you know, now as I read it, I see what it was really about, which is a bored housewife who's married to this incredibly boring guy um, who wants to have an affair and um, then later finds out that he's having an affair. And it's a very kind of, you know, uh, meditation on like suburban ennui, like a woman who has it all, but, you know, does she? And Norman is comically a bad husband. Like, he's just an absurdly bad husband. And, um, you know, some of the uh, the signifiers about, you know, sort of sexual awakening are so obvious that, you know, literally a man shows up on her lawn masturbating. Like, it is a real situation. A motorcycle in tow, no less. So, I mean, it is a real thing. And when I first read it, though, again, like, uh, this was definitely the first time that I read about a woman An adult woman who, uh, you know, is concerned with her own pleasure, uh, with experimenting and with doing transgressive things, both in terms of her marriage and in terms of sex. I distinctly remember asking a friend of mine, did you know you could have sex standing up? This was a revelation to me. And having now reread it, you know, there are certain things about it, particularly at the ending, in which there is a wild situation with the main character that really doesn't make sense now. And it is certainly very dated. There are parts of the suburban ennui that are not dated at all, and Mm -hmm. I would encourage everyone to read. (laughs) Um, But there was no other book like this and the 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 holy trinity of are you there god it's me margaret forever and wifey really made up the kind of literary canon of sexual Experience that I had any contact with, Mm -hmm. and not just sexual experience, but of friendships and of relationships, of spiritual relationships. I mean, one thing that are you there, God, to speak, Margaret, is it's about having a relationship with God. Yeah. You know, so I don't know that there are three more important books to my development than that particular trio.
1: Yeah, and going back to the suburban ennui that you were talking about, Barry, uh, I was actually watching the documentary. I think it's called Judy Bloom Forever by Davina mm-hmm. Pardo and Leah Walchuk. And there, Judy Bloom says that she was, of course, living in suburban New Jersey. And she says that, you know, the women's movement had come to America. Women were burning bras on the streets, but not in the streets of where I lived. And of course, you know, the release of Wifey and her divorce with her first husband, um, John Bloom, happened around the same time. But what I loved in the film, where the first thing she said about her divorce was that, I wanted to live in the city. Yeah. And there is this beautiful image of her... On the brink of a somersault, it was so joyful, this idea of this woman who's famous, who's uh, a mother to two children, but she just wants to live in the city. She's done with suburbia, and she just wants to whoop on her bra, which was so beautiful. Um, so that's what I remembered uh, when I heard you talking about wifey Can I
2: can I say one fun fact, too, you guys? Yes. Me, probably you already know this, but her mom and Philip Roth's mom were friends. Oh, wow! wow. I mean... Yeah. Right. And there's this great story um, where they run into each other in the supermarket, you know, and he's written Goodbye, Columbus, which is, you know, certain, and, you know, she's written, Are you there? Gotta meet me, and Margaret. And they say, and well, I can't remember which mother asked the other, you know, what do you say when they say, when they ask you, how does she know all that? and the response is i don't know i just say it wasn't me <laughs> but it is amazing
1: like because those books in some ways are in conversation with each other you know yes and it's so fascinating you say that because she says this in the documentary that she had never had conversations about sex with her mother growing up mm-hmm but her mother typed each and every, uh, till she died, of course, each and every of her manuscripts. So she's like, what was my mother thinking when wow. she was typing out these long, I mean, actually, they're not long. They're actually a very a few lines in each book. Yeah. But what was my mother thinking when she was typing these things out? Things we had never spoken about. Totally fascinating. Oh, that's a good detail. Um,
0: The book that I picked is from the opposite pole of her work (laughs) from Wifey in a bunch of different ways. I wanted to talk a little bit about her work, both her work for little kids and her work that was about boys. Mm -hmm. Um, Because she's often associated, I think, so much with writing for girls that it sort of gets forgotten that she also wrote books about boys. She wrote, then again, maybe I won't, which is a, Mm -hmm. a kind of a puberty adolescence book centered around the experience of a boy, But she also has this series called The Fudge Series that starts with the book Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. Mm -hmm. And Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing is about Peter, who is nine years old and has a two-turning-three-year-old brother whose nickname is Fudge. What I love about this book is that it's almost like how I feel about some of the John Hughes movies, is that they find a way to take seriously the emotional landscape of younger people mm-hmm. even though it is a lighthearted book it moves fast it's a quite a young audience for this book but it moves through peter having these complicated feelings about having this toddler sibling that he in some ways loves him but also is like legitimately aggravated by him and it's legitimately mm-hmm. aggravating there's a sense there's not a sort of a yeah you should recognize that really you love your brother and really everybody in a family just loves each other. There's an event late in the book that's very hurtful to him and very painful for him. And he's kind of allowed to be mad and hurt and to sometimes wish he didn't have this brother. But there is also this lovely couple of scenes, one with his mother and one with his father, where you can sense that this nine-year-old is partly dealing with the world by just beginning to get these slight glimpses of being invited into the world of grown-ups by his parents because they sort of laugh about something together about fudge mm-hmm. and it kind of becomes a little bit of a confidence between those of us who live in this family with this kid know how nutty he can get right mm-hmm. And she used this book as a jumping off point for a series of books about these kids who live in this apartment building in New York. And I like this book because Peter is allowed to really, in some ways, not enjoy the experience of having a sibling. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Like, it's okay to be annoyed by your family. Sometimes your family can be annoying. Also, fudge is like feral. Fudge is like feral. <laughs> and it doesn't really... It's, he
1: eats a turtle, right? Yes.
0: What? And it doesn't teach the kid, you feel like this, you should feel like that, mm-hmm. right? It teaches the kid, you feel like this, and that's okay. And it's very accepting of those feelings. And that's one of the reasons why I love that book.
2: It's so funny that you say that, because I... I always think of Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing as being the thing that made my older son a reader who has a, you know, a a brother that is three years younger than he is. And everything you've just described is so much his experience. And I sort of didn't under—I was like, oh, it's funny. He's going to like it because it's a comedy. But now I realize he liked it— because his brother was feral and incredibly annoying and did not kill any pets but you know <laughs> it's a really great sort of sibling therapy book
0: it's it's very empathetic toward older siblings i think give this to your older children people <laughs> well we want to know what your favorite judy bloom works are. Find us at facebook.com slash pchh. That brings us to the end of our show. Barry Hardiman and Bedatri D. Chaudhry. Thank you so much for being here. This was so fun. This really was so so fun. Thank
1: you. I would not do it with anyone else. Absolutely. Yes. Well, we want to take
0: a moment to thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so much for showing your support of NPR. If you haven't signed up yet, you want to show your support and you'd like to listen to this show without any sponsor breaks, head on over to plus.npr.org slash happy hour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Candice Lim and Mike Katziff and edited by Jessica Reedy. Audio engineering was performed by Gilly Moon. And Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify.